Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Devin Zugel, Open Source Product Manager at GitHub. Devin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. As I said, your title is Open Source Product Manager, which, based on the announcement that I saw on the internet, it sounds like that may be a new position or at least a new role for you. But I am super interested in hearing more about what that position is and and what it means within GitHub and, and for you personally. So can you talk a little bit more about that role? Sure. So I just joined GitHub about, I think, three months ago now. And I'm coming from an engineering background. This is my first product management role. Open source is one of those things that's always been at the heart of GitHub. But we've come at a point where we realize that there are certain needs that are really specific to the open source community and really aren't necessarily solved by some of the other teams that we've been going for. So The open source team is about focusing on the needs of those specific people. And I'm really excited to sort of be part of a team that is filling that gap between all of the other different users on our platform. From my standpoint, I remember seeing the announcement post and I was extremely excited because this is always something that I've strongly associated with GitHub, having such a strong footprint in open source. And I don't know if it's actually a tagline or not, or if I'm making this up, but the place that open source happens. Mm-hmm. Did I make that up or is that a thing? I'm not sure. I think that's a thing. But okay, uh... <laughs> uh, that's certainly the way I view the world, at least. And so the idea that there's going to be all the more of an emphasis on that is, is wonderful to hear. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about the path that you took to get here, because this is a really interesting I think, unique position that you found yourself in. So I was wondering if you could describe a little bit more of the work that you've done prior to this and then how this role made sense for you and and why this is something that you wanted to do. For sure. One piece, real quick, to touch on sort of the history of GitHub and how this role happened and how I fell into it, is that, yeah, open source has really permeated the entire culture of the company, which is awesome. But I think one of the things that we realized while I was talking to the company about making this role and joining was that there really has to be one team or one person who owns it. Otherwise, it sort of falls through the cracks. And so that was a really big piece of the decision making process where everyone realized like this is always on everybody's list, but it's nobody's top priority at the company. There has to be an owner for it. Right. If everyone owns something, then no one owns something. And so you were falling into that space. Yep. Precisely. And so that was one of the things that made me really excited because I think that's something I believe really strongly is having that kind of ownership within a company where people are responsible for the outcomes uh, is really, really key. In terms of my path for getting into this role, I studied computer science in college. And uh, after that, I worked at a few different software companies as a full stack web engineer. Through that time, I obviously used open source. You you can't really do web development without it. And it was actually the bike shed that started introducing me to the voices behind open source. I remember I was doing a lot of Rails development at the time, and I heard Sean talking about his work on the Rails core. And there was a very specific moment where I had a light bulb moment, and it clicked for me. Where I was like, oh, man, there are people behind this thing. Um, and, <laughs> and they're not different. They're not other people. They're, they're the same. Yeah, they're, they're humans who also like have reasons for doing what they do, and they're interesting in their own right. And that sort of started taking me down a path of understanding the production behind open source and what it really means to contribute and, and like why people contribute. Several years later, I came across Nadia Eggball's Rosen Bridges report, which you might be familiar with. It basically talks about how open source is the digital infrastructure for the web and how unless we are able to properly support these people with 
both funding, but also the right tools to get the job done. We're going to have less and more subpar infrastructure than we otherwise could. And so that was another light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh man, this is huge. And one of the reasons that analogy resonated so strongly is because I'm also uh, very interested in urban planning and urban design, which feels like a total red herring. But there are a lot of parallels between open source and cities, and especially the way that cities fund their infrastructure, the way communities make decisions about what they're going to build. And so hearing that analogy of roads and bridges sparked some thoughts in me. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with this problem. And then GitHub is the natural home to work on these things. Yeah, absolutely. I remember reading in the announcement where you talked a little bit about your interest in city planning, and it didn't click with me then, but what you were just saying about sort of infrastructure and how roads and bridges and those sort of things are the foundation upon which other commerce, real commerce happens, and that in the digital world that open source is part of that same foundation is, a, like you said, a very apt analogy and an interesting way to think about things. And often neglected, but also critically important. There's a bunch of different topics and so many different ways to poke at the complexities of open source because it is such a uniquely complicated technical and human and sociological and just kind of all the stuff comes together there. So I have a few questions outlined, but you know we'll see where the conversation takes us. The first one that I wanted to talk about, and you did slightly hint at it a moment ago, is the idea of funding models within mm-hmm. open source. So there's a ton of open source work that needs to happen, but we don't necessarily always have the money to support it. And so recently I've seen a few different things tried. Uh, Patreon is one thing. So I don't actually know how to pronounce this name. Syndrosaurus is an example of someone who's doing well on mm-hmm. Patreon and actually I think is fully funded at this point and just doing open source through that. But that's more of a patron system, which is kind of interesting. There's the Open Collective, which most recently I've seen ES Lint has moved in that direction. And then the other model, which I'm really intrigued by, is the pro model. So for instance, Sidekick or GraphQL Pro are examples of projects in the Ruby world that have open source versions, but then they also have pro models that layer on top. So that's my view of some of the different options that are out there. But I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? What do you see as the differing options and and where you see success happening and not necessarily happening? Yeah. So I think the the first thing that I'll say is that I don't think that this is going to be a problem that's solved by a single model. Mm. Everybody's needs are really different and the communities that they're talking to and asking for the funding from are very different. The software is very different. And so that's a little bit of an unsatisfying answer in the sense that like, it would be really nice to have one silver bullet. The catchphrase of the podcast is it depends. So yeah. totally fits within that framework. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, exactly. Like I think all of the models that you mentioned are really great uh, to dive into some specifics. Patreon, I think, is great for individuals. And actually, I've seen some groups starting to use it as well to say, if you donate to this individual, then I will spread it across the rest of the team. But for the most part, it's a tool for individuals to connect with the people who who like their work. And there are a few things I really like about it. One is recurring revenue, which for people who aren't familiar, the the Patreon model is effectively, in most cases, a monthly subscription where you pay $5 a month to someone that you really like or however much you want. And that recurring revenue is really important. If we're talking about somebody who wants to try to make base their life off of this, either in part, this is part of their earnings or maybe even their full salary in the case of Cinder or uh, some other people on the platform, smoothness and predictability are key. You can't build a life if you don't know how much money is coming in at any given time. So I think that's great. Another piece about Patreon that I love is that it's, it's awesome for connecting with your community. So they offer a suite of tools 
for like newsletters and reach outs and different tiers of memberships, which give the creators or the, the maintainers a way to connect with those people. And so it's not just about the money. It's also about building a relationship with the people who are funding you. Now, at the end of the day, most open source software is built by groups of people. And so I don't see Patreon solving the open source sustainability problem in one fell swoop. But one of the reasons why I see it being such a prominent solution right now is because of a a little bit of a weird characteristic I notice about open source. And that is back to the physical infrastructure analogy. If you're building something like a dam or a subway, you need institutional support from day one. What that means is like you need the money, (laughs) you need permits, you need experts who have built a dam before. The difference with open source is that you can get started without any institutional support. And that's awesome in many ways. That means that people can get started doing things that they otherwise wouldn't be given permission to do. And I think on net is a really wonderful thing and one of the most special things about software. The downside is that years down the line when an open source project you started on the weekend is now being used by millions of people, you haven't necessarily solved governance issues. You haven't had to deal with the question of like, how do decisions get made and who gets compensated for what if there's funding? I think this is a surmountable problem. It's just one of the reasons why we see so many people opting for the more individual route, because it's just really hard to answer those governance questions. Uh, which brings us to Open Collective, which you mentioned. Open Collective is another solution I'm really happy to see exist. They're more of a focus on groups, and they're, they're starting to tackle some of these challenges around how to allocate funds to a group of people. They have a totally transparent system. So when you go into a collective, which is the name of a group that is asking for funding, what can happen is that they, they have a budget, which is created by the donations that people put into to the bucket. And then to be able to withdraw money, the developers or the community members or whomever will submit an expense to the collective, which then the, the collective as a group makes a decision as to whether or not that expense is valid. And usually you don't expense something unless you are pretty sure that it's going get, to get funded by the group. And so that model seems to be re- working really well for some projects, including Webpack and Babel. They're, those are two of the most prominent projects on the platform. I still think that it's not the full solution, but I think Pia and Javier and the whole team over at Open Collective really have the, the right mindset. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what they're doing moving forward. And then also the, the pro model. I know Mike Perham at Sidekick is, has an awesome business going. I, I love to see what he's doing. I think that that's another model that works pretty well. I don't personally know Mike, but it seems like it's working great for him. And um, I would love to see more people try it. I think it's mm-hmm. limited in scope in the sense that not all open source projects can be productized in that way. And also some people just don't want to make a business. That's not what they're trying to do. So it's a great fit for some people. And I think it's an awesome solution for a subset of the market. But as I said at the beginning, like there's no silver bullet. And so each of these things fills one niche. And I think that we'll see more innovation on those models moving forward too. 
Yeah, it is interesting the way you're describing almost the sort of tiered nature of it. And I feel like there's sort of an unfortunateness to that of if folks are starting on, say, a, a Patreon type model, and then as the project grows, and it suddenly becomes a thing, then there has to be this sort of discontinuity and stepwise change of we're now moving to a governance model and uh, electing board members and mm-hmm. core contributors and things like that. But I guess that's sort of the nature of the thing. And it's possible that, say, there could be a single company out there that could support across that continuum, but it is interesting. I, I guess that sort of starts to move in the direction of a different question that I have, which is around motivation within open source. A lot of what I see in open source is it's someone scratching their own itch. It's a project that they're deeply interested in. It's something that they want to learn and that they really care about building. And it starts from this place of very intrinsic motivation. But then potentially as you start to bring money into the question or as it starts to become used more widely and they have to contend with more voices in the discussion, it can move to this extrinsic motivation place. And I wonder about that transition and, and what you see of that. And is that a problem? Is that something that is bringing complexity to this world? Or is that yeah, I guess what are your thoughts on on that front? Yeah, I have a range of thoughts. So so for one, I think that the research around extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation basically shows that uh, if someone's doing something that they love for free, then you give them, you know, 10 bucks to say like thank you. Like I don't know, my, my mom really likes making me pancakes when I come visit the house. And if I if I thanked her with like a $5 bill, she'd be like, "Uh, this is a little less fun all of a sudden." That would be a very weird interaction. It would be very weird. Yeah. T- yeah. Tipping your mother for pancakes is not not recommended. And uh, I could imagine that sort of simulating myself in the position of a, a maintainer who's been doing something that they love for a long time. I could imagine that if someone gives me a, a, like a small tip that that might be demotivating, even though, you know, from a, an economic rationality perspective, it's like strictly better. I think the the question comes like, what is the threshold beyond which that changes? So I get paid for my job. I also love my job. In my ideal world, I would do this job if I wasn't getting paid. But at the same time, I also need to support myself. And I live in San Francisco and that that costs money. And so the fact that I get paid a salary from GitHub is really important to be able to sustain the work that I do. And if I didn't have that salary, I wouldn't be able to do this work, even though I do love it. I think that Open source is not necessarily the same. Like sometimes it does not necessarily require you to have a full-time job, but there's opportunity costs involved. And especially you, you talked about how when people start reaching out with questions and opening issues and making demands about the project, even if you love it, that stuff isn't that much fun. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you like what you're doing, getting yelled at about it is just not great. And Unfortunately, that's the current state of like having an open source project that just comes with it. That's not a statement about whether that's okay or not. It's just a statement of like, that's, that's the reality. And so I think to be able to sustain that work, I think that it's a question of a threshold where if it's below that, I can see it being pretty demotivating because it's not enough to really support the work. But if it's above that threshold, then it suddenly becomes a viable job or something that is like worth the pain and, and, and effort that you put into it again. I think two other quick thoughts about that, like the burnout question, I think of it as sort of a, a little equation. Basically, it's whether or not someone is motivated to do the work is roughly the benefits minus the costs. And on the benefits side of things, there is your intrinsic motivation, how much you love it, Maybe you're getting paid, which many open source developers are supported through companies or through Patreon. 
There's the opportunity to get to know your community. There's, there's a lot of things that are, that are going for open source that are awesome. On the other hand, there is potential for abuse. People are reaching out to you and demanding that you do something. That's not great. That's a cost. There's the constraints on your time where maybe you do have a full-time job or maybe you only have 24 hours in the day, like, like most of us. And you can only go Maybe. through <laughs> so many issues at once. And that's, that's a real cost to bear is like, you could be doing anything else with that time. And that's a lot of work. And so I think the key for the burnout question is making sure that the benefits remain larger than the costs so that people are happy. That, that seems so obvious when you say it, right? But the benefits have to be larger than the costs and they have to stay consistently larger than the costs. And I think that a meaningful source of income, whether it's a full salary or if it's just a thank you, like 10% increase to your income so that you don't go spending that time doing something else can be really helpful. And then the last thing I'll say is this is something where I think Patreon really gets it right, where Patreon really is not just about the money. It's also about increasing intrinsic motivation by connecting creators to their patrons in their FAQ, uh, I, I read the other day, they said something along the lines of like, there's, there's two types of currency on Patreon. One is that we want to help you achieve financial success. So that's money. The other one is that we want to help you grow and engage a loyal community. And we want to help you connect with those people so that they follow you from project to project. They feel invested in what you're doing. And so I, I see Patreon as something that can actually increase intrinsic motivation as opposed to just just reducing it through putting extrinsic rewards on top. Yeah, I have a tiny bit of open source in the world, but it is interesting to me looking at the world of open source through that lens and the difference in the volume of complaints or as, as you put it, demands versus the quietly happy users out there that are getting value and that are very pleased to have this piece of software in their world. There's such an imbalance in that that I think, if nothing else, on this radio podcast that we have access to right now, uh, everybody out there, maybe go on Twitter or on GitHub or something and just thank someone for some open source that they're doing. Every once in a while, I will get someone reaching out and saying like, hey, thank you for that thing that you made. And it always feels great. And it really does. It's that injection of social currency that really does help with the times that there is a little more noise on the other end of the spectrum. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by CircleCI, the continuous integration and delivery service used by companies like Twilio, Intuit, WeWork, Tinder, and even us here at ThoughtBot. CI and CD are so important for keeping teams building, it's all CircleCI does. They focus on creating powerful, flexible CI-CD pipelines so that you and your team can focus on doing what you do best. Whether you're a company of 5 or 500, CircleCI can build, test, and deploy your Linux and macOS projects from GitHub and Bitbucket in their cloud or installed on your servers. And anyone can sign up and start building for free, since CircleCI gives both private and public projects 1,000 free build minutes per month. Sign up and start building for free at circleci.com slash bikeshed. Thank you to CircleCI for sponsoring our show. All the conversations around burnout and all of that, it, it is, again, such a complicated thing. And I, I guess to continue on with that theme, I wonder... Where does GitHub fit into this mix? I know as I look at it, I've seen some developments over the years that like you're providing a public issue tracker and over time you've added more moderation tools and things to help manage those discussions and provide even the recent, I assume, machine learning magic to provide potential like, oh, did you is this your question? Did you mean that? Did you mean to go search before you're actually posting this, which you should do anyway, everybody on the internet? But I'm wondering 
where, as much as you can, you know, speak to this, where does GitHub fit in that? Where do you think your role is within fostering those communities and conversations? And where do you think it's probably better left to other organizations or, or groups? Yeah, the role that I see GitHub playing here is providing the primitives for the communities to figure out what they want to do on their own, and then also providing sort of best practices of the things that we, we see other communities doing that seem to work really well, uh, but without prescribing any one thing. Because each community really does have different needs and different norms. And it's really important that we respect that and we don't enforce any particular thing. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've seen that I would love to see GitHub support more and I, we're, we're actively working towards is the ability for open source maintainers and, and teams to moderate discussions better. And that's a whole suite of tools that falls under that umbrella. Uh, But one pattern that I've seen that seems to work really well is in the the closure community. There's this guy, Rich Hickey. He's the BDFL, and I say that lovingly, the the benevolent Mm -hmm. dictator for life uh, of the the project. He's the person who created closure originally, and he's really a genius developer. Like, I I, I really can't put it any other way. And um, I spoke to some of the people on the team, and one of the things that they talked about was a really key part of the way that the closure team operates is that they have tiered triaging roles. And so what happens is when someone opens an issue, Rich does not get pinged immediately. It's, in fact, it takes a while for him to get pinged. There's a first line of defense where there are issue triagers who say, has this thing been answered before? Can we just simply answer this question? Is it pretty straightforward? Is it really a bug? And like, I don't know the exact numbers, but like 50% of the issues get chopped off there. Then they go to a second line of defense of people who maybe are a little bit more senior. And they now look at this issue, which has already been sort of vetted as like a serious question or one that is like not a duplicate or something like that. And then they, they dive in and they do their work. And then there's a few tiers before, before that. And then finally, when it's a really serious thing or if it's something that requires like a really high level sort of mastermind kind of answer or a proposal for a change to the core language, that's when Rich sees it. And only after it's gone through a number of filters. And um, I think that's an awesome model. It seems to work really well for them. Now, of course, just like with the funding models, there's no silver bullet because not every community has that structure where there's one person who is sort of the tastemaker for the rest of the community. But there are many that do have that shape. And I think there are lessons to be drawn there around tools that GitHub can offer and also best practices that other communities could either adopt wholesale or at least take as inspiration. That's interesting. I, I was uh, not familiar with the governance model that Clojure uses there, but that, that definitely makes a lot of sense and allows for multiple people to be useful at the level that they're able to support that. I, I'm interested actually in a, in a related thing there where, so Rich Hickey is an example of a strong curator, a, a very strong voice within this community. And as I think about a lot of the other open source communities that I follow, there's Matt's for Ruby. There was Guido for Python, although he recently stepped down as benevolent dictator for life, which was a real surprise. But there's Linus in Git and Linux, I guess not Git anymore, but Linux still. And I'm actually trying, I'm struggling to come up with a 
An example of a project, I guess Rails is probably one that works with a more distributed, like DHH still has a very strong voice in the taste making there, but there is a strong, strong core team. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that distinction of singular, um, like the Steve Jobs model versus the design by committee and, and where that works and doesn't work. And Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts. So <laughs> for some examples of communities that are more distributed in terms of their decision making, there's JavaScript ecosystem broadly, where there exist standards organizations, but they don't really ordain anything. They just say like, this is what we think is good. And and people tend to adopt it over time, but there's no like word from down on high, which is like, this is the way we do things. (laughs) And that's evidenced by sort of an explosion of different interpretive, like different syntaxes for JavaScript and and things like that, which has caused confusion for people in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, like each individual edition does have a good claim to like, we're, we're, we're trying to experiment with this thing. It's, it's better in this way. There's this improvement. Uh, and so to sort of pull it back to a higher level, there are really interesting trade-offs in both directions. The rough spectrum that I see is sort of like centralized decision-making versus decentralized decision-making. And on the centralized side, one of the benefits is that there tends to be much more consistency and less confusion in those communities because there's sort of a, a clear source of truth for how decisions get made and, and people tend to really respect these people. So they, they actually don't chafe that much. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Like Maybe they do in some communities, but in many communities, this person has very much like earned that right to be the person who says like, this is my taste. And if you want to be in this community, this is what we're doing. And if you don't, cool, but you're not part of this. And that means that there's clarity of, of decision-making. Big decisions can be made. Uh, so Elm, which is created by Evan uh, oh, Chapliki, I believe. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's great. Uh, sorry, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> he is great, though. <laughs> yeah. Evan, I would definitely put in this category of uh, a really strong central voice in the community. And this allows him to make really potentially controversial decisions where he just says, like, this is not the vision that I had for Elm. And there have been some times where he's introduced breaking changes to Elm in successive versions, of course. And he just sort of pulled out an entire feature because he said, you know, no, like I thought this was a good idea, but actually it wasn't. And so this is how it is. And uh, what that means is that Elm is incredibly clean and easy to understand when you first come in. The downside is that like some people lost a feature that they depended on. And I won't like make any judgment as to which one is right. It's just a trade-off that has to be made. Now, on the other hand, something like JavaScript has sort of an opposite set of problems and advantages. An advantage is that everybody gets to have a voice. Everybody can add their own little syntactic sugar on top of JavaScript and like have exactly their customization. It also means that small innovations can happen at a faster pace because there's no one central bottleneck that it has to go through. Whereas like if you want to get something into Clojure or Elm, you have to go through Rich or Evan. And again, that's both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength because it's now filtered through them and they have great taste. It's a weakness in the sense that the language can't evolve quite as quickly. So I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I think at, at a high level, I'd say like the benefits of the centralized approach are that you get big decisions that can be made quickly after long periods of deliberation. Uh, And so you sort of have like step level functions of development, but when changes happen, they really happen fast. And that's both good and bad, depending on like what side of the change you're on. And then the decentralized approach means that everybody gets to have a voice. 
there's much more continuous evolution, but there's also more of an opportunity for hill climbing where like you get stuck at a local maximum just because there's no one person who has like a holistic view of the system and can say like, let's go in this direction because it's clearly better. This is one of the really big decisions when trying to decide what open source communities you want to participate in, either as a contributor or as a user. And it's just a really important thing to keep in mind. And it's about the trade-offs that you want to make. It is such an interesting and subtle world. And I think I'm inclined towards the more purposefully curated. Um, I see Elm and I love the design of it. And I, even though there were the strong breaking changes and even the most recent version and, and other versions, I like the purposeful nature of that. And I guess the allowing of backwards incompatibility is one of the things that, that comes along with that. And But it means that the thing that we have now is more purposeful and more clear and cohesive. And like similar, Rails has these overarching themes that guide the work that happens. And at the end of the day, although I don't necessarily agree with everything that DHH chooses for Rails, Rails has a very strong, clear opinion and works very well together. Mm-hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, JavaScript is a very complicated uh, language to work within. And there are rough edges that I guess the backwards incompatibility is probably an independent, but possibly somewhat related topic. But like JavaScript seems to not be able to make breaking changes. And that makes things very complicated. Yeah, there's so much cruft still left in the language from its history. And I think the thing that it is now is so different than what it was when it began. And yet you still have to keep an eye out for lots of idiosyncrasies and oddities around the corner. And so I am inclined towards that central voice, but at the same time, it does slow things down. I've heard people complaining. There was actually a really impassioned response that Matt's of Ruby fame gave recently on Twitter to someone saying like, why is Ruby not adding these new features? This should be so easy to do. And Matt's was like, whoa, 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 we're people. We're trying our best, but we have to be careful. We care about backwards compatibility. We care about all of these things. So please understand and be kind on the internet, Um, which was a wonderful, it was a really great summary and and message. Um, It was incredibly concise too. I was impressed by the whole message of it. But yeah, open source is such an interesting intersection of just all of the things. Um, So I I guess to loop back to what you were saying there, one of the things that you're most interested in is is moderation and, and conversations. Is there anything that you can talk about? I'm, obviously, I'm guessing you can't talk about specific features that are under development, but or maybe you can, I don't know. Uh, what can you share of sort of the direction that you imagine that going or other ways that you think GitHub as a platform can provide the primitives that you described earlier? Yeah, I think I probably can't speak to any specific features that we're working on, especially the ones that my team isn't specifically working on because I don't want to speak mm-hmm. for anybody else. But I will say that like, all the things that I've touched on are some of our like core themes for this year where uh, we realize that there are important gaps to the product that are just, just absolutely necessary for us to provide. And we're working on sort of the access privileges and providing some of the tools around the moderation things that I mentioned. I guess I just say to keep an eye out over the next few months and, and we're planning to roll some of these things out with its own sort of GitHub flavor. Cool. Like I said, I certainly understand the not being able to get into the specifics on that, but it is great to hear that that is a focus because I know that particularly for larger open source projects, that is something that folks struggle with when they're they're maintaining those projects and trying to have effective communication, making sure that people have a voice, but making sure that individuals are not able to overrun a conversation or that there's you know mob mentality and things like that. So yeah, that all that all makes sense. Yeah. To sort of round out the conversation, I'm wondering if you have any tips or high-level recommendations, or I guess possibly examples from the community that you've seen, both on the 
consumer and the maintainer side. So almost all of us are consumers of open source. We've probably opened issues or had to interact. So do you have any recommendations as to how to be a good open source citizen on that side? And then similarly on the maintainer side, I think you've talked a little bit more about that, but any other best practices or things that you'd recommend? Sure. So I I will give a meta level one and also a more concrete one. So at a meta level, I think a lot of different open source communities have figured different parts of the puzzle out. And they just haven't really talked to each other and shared those best practices. One of the coolest parts of my job is I get to talk to people across a lot of different types of open source communities. And it sounds to me like how much they've each innovated to figure different things out. But then they, they're sort of missing something else that a different community figured out. So, so I think one is I would just urge them to look at one another. It's just like if you're designing a programming language, you should look at other programming languages and understand the trade-offs that they made and, and read their prior art. I think it's very similar where developing the community is as much a job as writing the code, if not more. And it's something where you can look to examples to get a lot of inspiration. Now, in more concrete terms, what I would wish I had told myself when I was first getting into software development and didn't really understand how open source worked, before you open any issues, just sit there and think for a second Like, what is the person on the other side of this interaction going to think? Like, how are they going to react to this? Simulate their brain state as much as you can. I think for me, at least, I I won't speak for everybody, but for me, before I realized that open source was created by humans, which sounds idiotic, but before I realized that the open source is created by humans, I just hadn't thought about it. You know, it was not computed. And so I think taking a moment to compute it is really the the biggest difference. This is something I've noticed is that people who are involved in open source themselves are almost invariably really positive and constructive in their communications. It's mostly the people who, who are more new to it that aren't as constructive. And so I guess just urging people to think about it and sort of pause every time you make a demand and understand that you don't necessarily know the life situation of the person on the other side of the interaction. And so you shouldn't make any assumptions about why they're doing this. That all makes sense. And uh, yeah, the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated with the additional uh, having to come to the realization that they are humans on the other side. I I definitely had a similar arc where, especially earlier on when it was more forums and things and there was less of a personal humanness to it, like GitHub, I think, actually does a pretty good job of their avatars and you can see people. It's it's connected to humans and, and does help clarify that, I think. But I definitely had a similar, like, uh, why is this project? I, I was focusing on the project mm-hmm. and not the people behind it. And I think, yeah, definitely worth considering those humans. And then uh, very similar to like pull requests on any project, try and give as much context and, and things like that. Try and help them get into your shoes and understand the why of the change that you're talking about or what have you. What you were describing, though, of how there are these different camps and you're seeing across different communities, I'm super intrigued. Like what you described of the closure community was new to me and makes a ton of sense, but I hadn't really heard it. I'm very interested to see how that develops. And I I hope that you're able to be a voice of that moving forward. And as you're going out there and exploring the wild tundra of open source, bring back the stories of uh, the teams that are, are being successful in various ways. So, yeah, I look forward to hearing more of that. Yeah, yeah. I uh, have been actually making a pretty strong effort to connect people who seem to be facing similar problems, or especially the ones where one person has faced a problem and solved it that the other person has not quite yet, and it's starting to come up. It's been a really satisfying part of the job to connect people who can help each other. I mean, at the core of it, that is what open source is all about. 
it's just this time it's a little bit less about code and a little bit more about handling communities and building the communities and, and building that trust. Yeah. I am intrigued if there's a way to sort of amplify that and not to put any work on your plate, but like, are there blog posts or podcasts or like, I feel like this sort of information is often the sort of tribal secrets within a group that isn't necessarily documented some way, but you may, by going in and having the conversations, they say, oh, well, we work in this way. Mm -hmm. When you see positive mechanisms, there a way to amplify that back up or encourage communities to document more of their processes and then, you know, again, connect that on the internet. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm very interested in seeing how this all develops. Yeah. One thing that we, we have is a maintainers group, which is it's an invite only, though we accept applications. It's basically a GitHub organization called maintainers. And there are discussions in there all the time about the stuff. And it's amazing to me how many times two people that I know fairly well like have never actually crossed paths before, even though their challenges are so similar. And so honestly, the first like two months of my job was basically just kindling that organization and, and making sure that everybody was like having a good time. And that's going to be like ongoing. That's, that's going to take up a significant portion of my time forever. Cause I think that's one of the biggest places where GitHub does kind of have visibility into all of these different things. And it's, it can sort of serve as that shelling point where everyone comes together and, and talks to each other because they don't usually do that in their repos. Yep. The closure people and the JavaScript people, like they intersect sort of at the edges, but we can connect them even more. Absolutely. I am interested though. I think it certainly makes sense to have that be a group that's a little more curated and purposeful. But then I wonder, it, it does feel somewhat contrary to the open source theme that that's a private group. So I'm wondering, what's the mechanism to get more of that back out into the, the public? Com- or yeah. is it publicly visible, but invite only? Yeah, exactly. So if you okay. go to like github.com slash maintainers, you'll see that the org exists and we're accepting applications for anyone who wants to join. It's important for it to be private so that people can feel really comfortable sharing some of their challenges mm-hmm. and getting the input they need. But one of the things that we're trying to do is to make it so that it scales beyond just that initial group and beyond GitHub. We don't want to be the, like the bus factor of one, basically. We, we want this to grow beyond GitHub. We just want to create the space for people to have the conversations. And one of the things that I've seen maintainers in the group suggest is say, hey, there's a lot of good material in here. Why don't we create a blog all as a group and share our findings from this group? And, and of course, like we would only share the things that were agreed to. So we, we wouldn't like quote anybody without it. And I think that that's something I'm excited to see them experiment with and sort of extract some of those insights. That sounds ideal in my mind, where that group of individuals can go off, have the conversations, determine the collective best practices, and then share that back out. Right. It's also interesting to me the way you're describing this. Is It sounds like you're more of a curator supporter rather than the director of right. this, which I think to start this thing and then to let it go on its own is, is often scary. But uh, I think that's a, a wonderful model for like sort of the way open source works. So it does match, but I'm excited. I will say yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Well, Devin, I think that is a perfect spot for us to stop for the day. Where could folks find more of your work on the internet? You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Devin Zugel. You can also uh, read my blog at devinzugel.com. Great. And we will include links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you again for coming. This has been an absolute pleasure, Devin. Thank you for having me on. This was a blast. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bike shed.fm. 
Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.